New Year, same old fights. Or are they? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com. And Jeremy's work, of course, appears at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com in San Antonio. Happy New Year, sir. Oh, here we go. It's like finally an election cycle. I love it. We're in the middle of 2024. Yeah, it felt like an election cycle to a degree all last year. Uh, where, there's just no uh, space anymore between um, governing and campaigning in Texas. I mean, we we literally had a special session start on an election day. You remember that? Yeah, I think good it was point. the last special session. Um, there's no separation between the two anymore. As we go into this new year, I did want to say one thing, just a personal message to the audience. Thank you. We're about to go into eight years of doing this show. And if you know the origin story of the show, Jeremy, I would not believe that we'd still be doing this. I'm the uh, longest standing um, uh, cast member, if you will. I was asked by the Houston Chronicle. Uh, this is it. This is how it happened. I was asked by the Chronicle uh, folks about eight years ago. This was the question. They said, what do you know about doing a podcast? The, and, and I said, I don't even, I don't even, at that point, Jeremy, I never even listened to a podcast. Yeah. I, I've listened to some now other than this one. Um, obviously podcasts were a going concern at that point. I just wasn't into it. I didn't care about it. They asked me that of course, because I have, you know, a background in broadcasting in radio. And I said, well, it can't be that much different. And I swear to you, I thought I was going to come in to the Chronicle office. I don't know, maybe for a week or two and help them get it started and then be done with it. Like it'd be a quick, like it'd be a quick consult. Like, hey, here's how you do it. You talk into the microphone. You talk about your, you know, you talk about your stories that you covered that week, and I, you know, just talk about the topics that people care about and and whatever. And I'm just still here. You know, we, we've been doing this collaboration with the Quorum Report and the Houston Chronicle. It, coming up in in June, we'll find some way to celebrate this, uh, Jeremy. Coming up in June will be eight years of doing the show. And I can tell you that over the holidays, people were so angry that we weren't here for two weeks. And I mean, people miss it if we're not doing this, if we're not in people's ears every single week talking about this stuff. And, and the show has become what I wanted it to be all along once I got, you know, dragged into it. <laughs> the show has become what I wanted, which is it just sounds like, hey, we're your friends talking you through what happened this week. We're not trying to tell you what to think about it or anything like that. Just trying to give you some perspective. And uh, I really do appreciate that people have stuck with us for this long. So happy new year to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're like me, it's like, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of readers out there. When something interesting happens when we're on a break, when somebody says something crazy, you know, you're thinking, oh, I wish the show was going this week, you know, so I could hear like, you know, you know, this clip, you know, talk about the crazy stuff that was said on Fox or MSNBC or mm -hmm. whatever. But, you know, but here we are. We're going to catch up with all the things we missed. Yes, we have a few things to catch up on. There has been so much happening uh, with the border. Uh, it, it's as if there was no holiday break uh, with any of that. Um, and we once again have the rest of the country noticing things that have passed uh, the Texas legislature, just like happened with abortion, which we will also talk about here a little bit later in the show. Um, but the, the immigration crackdown in Texas and all of the actions surrounding the new crackdown by the governor um, it's really getting the attention of people who don't normally pay attention to politics, Jeremy. It's one of these things that's sort of transcending normal politics. 
at this point. And I'll, I'll make, I'll, uh, I'll highlight that for you here. You know who Stephen A. Smith is? He's one of yeah, the sports of commentators. Yeah. Huge following. I mean, just for an example, he's got, I think, more than 6 million followers on Twitter, uh, all over television. And um, he usually is talking sports, but you know, in the history of the United States, there's, there's uh, a lot of overlap between sports and social commentary. I, I love when people will say, well, you know, these sports guys, they shouldn't be talking about politics. And I say, have you? Have you ever heard of Muhammad Ali? Do you even know what you're talking about? This this is not new for people in sports to weigh in on what's happening. Um, you know, our politics is informed by our culture and vice versa, right? Um, and Smith just went off about the new law, Senate Bill 4, which passed during one of the special sessions. Uh, and this is the one that has to do with local cops and state police being able to round up anybody that they think is illegally in the country or here was the nuance that they think illegally entered the country. And it also, in the in the bill, by the way, it did say unlawful presence, right? So that, that could be from anywhere on the border up to Dallas-Fort Worth and beyond. Um, but Smith went off about this, uh, talking about racial profiling. And look, he's he not wrong to say that you're probably going to see that. I have covered this for decades, Jeremy, these kinds of proposals where people want the local cops to round up immigrants who are not, quote, lawfully in the country. And I have never heard anybody sufficiently answer this question. If you don't use racial profiling, how would you know to suspect that there are undocumented people in the country? I've never heard anybody. In fact, when this debate is had in the legislature, the people defending the legislation, what will they say? They'll say, well, that's not an appropriate question. That doesn't even have anything to do with what we're talking about. Remember, you heard Senator Charles Perry say that to Roland Gutierrez, a senator from San Antonio, when this bill was on the floor of the Senate. So here's Stephen A. Smith going off to his millions of followers and saying, you know what's going on in Texas is just wrong. People can be arrested who are suspected of entering the country illegally. Do you realize that that means a law enforcement official can walk up to somebody? All right, they look Hispanic. Okay, they, 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 their English is broken. They don't speak fluid English. So that could be a cause for me to arrest them. Let them deal with the problems later. Smith said it's racism, plain and simple. That's what we're going to do to our Latino brothers and sisters. It's racist. Somebody needs to say it, so I'm going to say it. It's a racist-ass thing to do. Suspicion? Suspect. Suspected of entering the country illegally. How can you be suspected of entering the country illegally? So you chilling in downtown Dallas or Houston. You hanging out with a bunch of folks. You're speaking Spanish instead of English. Your clothes might not be a Tom Ford suit or something. You might not be wearing a Jordan sweatsuit. You might look a little poor and impoverished, a bit haggardy or haphazard. Those things might, you might not look the part. That's a suspicion. They can literally label that as suspicion to justify arresting you, not questioning you, not asking for an ID. They literally can arrest you. Now, you might think he's being a little over the top, screaming into the camera on his television show, Jeremy, 
But before this law even went into effect, we already know that there are some people who are legal residents and citizens of the United States who have been caught up in the immigration crackdown on the Texas-Mexico border. Here's the example. In El Paso, Angela Cacherga uh, reported for NPR that a family there that crosses the border regularly to visit their family down in Mexico, that they caught caught up by some of the cops there near the International Bridge. The Ayalas, like many El Paso families, routinely visit relatives just across the border in Mexico. Gerardo Ayala says one evening in October, after they cleared customs and immigration, they made their usual drive back to their house on the Texas side. We were coming home, traveling any normal day with my family. It was four of us in a, a Chevy Cruze. His wife, their 13-year-old daughter, and her grandmother were in the car with him on a busy, well-lit road. Suddenly, two unmarked trucks seemed to appear out of nowhere and boxed in his family's compact car. All of a sudden, this vehicle rams us from behind, pushes us into the other vehicle. The other vehicle puts his truck in reverse and actually reverses into us. At first, Ayala says he thought it was a chain reaction pileup on this busy roadway near the border. The car was damaged, but running. Already shaken, it only got worse for the family. He says at least four men wearing street clothes and tactical vests quickly surrounded the car. They were pointing semi-automatic rifles at them. Alejandra Lopez is Ayala's wife. When they started coming out with their guns, the first thing I did was look back, you know, to my daughter and my mom. I mean, they were the first things that I thought about. I saw her little face scared. I had never seen her face so scared. The Ayalas are U.S. citizens. They say there was no probable cause to pull them over, and certainly none to ram their car and threaten them with guns. But the Democrats in the Texas legislature are now saying, told you so, Jeremy, because remember, when these laws were debated in the Texas House and the Texas Senate, these Democrats were saying, that you're going to have people who are citizens who will be caught up in these dragnets along the border and in other places where the cops will now be looking for undocumented people, rounding up people that they suspect of being, quote unquote, illegally in the country, close quote. And you know that when it comes to how the state will do this, there's going to be legal challenges, and we've seen the big one now. Uh, The Department of Justice is suing Texas, saying that we can't do this, that that the state doesn't have this authority. Was there a case years ago that supposedly settled that? I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah. It was in Arizona. Remember, they passed a law called SB 1070. And with that law, it was very similar. It was, it was what was called the show me your papers bill at the time, right? And that show me your papers law was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. That was United States versus Arizona. And this question came up, and this is pretty important. You remember, Jeremy, that during the debate in the Texas House, the author of the legislation, David Spiller, was asked about whether this was about that issue, about whether Texas is seeking to have United States versus Arizona overturned, such that the state can just do whatever it wants when it comes to border security. This is the uh, chair of the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus, Victoria Niave Criado. She's asking... Representative Spiller, about that, and listen to his answer. 
and again, this is pretty important. This needs to be on the record. That people, people need to keep this in mind as the legal challenge plays out. You heard Attorney General Ken Paxton in the past has said that he hopes that the Supreme Court rules differently from the Arizona versus United States case, and which has already determined that states cannot enforce immigration, right? So you've heard the AG Paxton say that, right? I'm not advised. Or do you know that he made that stance or statement in the past? I, I don't know that. But you're working with his office on this bill, correct? We've communicated with many, many parties on, on the implement on the structure and implementation of this bill. Yes. Yep. Yes or no, did you work with Attorney General Ken Paxton's office I just on said this yes. legislation? I just said yes. Thank you. Do you hope that the Supreme Court will overturn Arizona versus United States? No. I'm you not asking hope- for that. I'm, this is not that. I, I mean, people have asked me that. Are you trying to overturn Arizona versus U.S.? And my answer to that is no. Whether Arizona versus U.S. was properly rendered or not is irrelevant because we have steered completely clear of what Arizona did, Senate Bill 1070, when they passed that in 2010, and the, and the issues and problems that they had in the Arizona case. Now, this is where there is a giant disconnect between the legislative process of what happens there versus the rhetoric you hear from the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, et cetera. They are saying, they're arguing publicly on Fox News Channel and everywhere else that Texas has got to be the government in the country that cracks down on immigration. You just heard the bill author there say that they're not trying to reverse what happened with Arizona versus the United States after that law was passed back in 2010. So listen, So, do you hear sort of the timid way that Spiller is talking about that, Jeremy? During the debate, he's kind of just almost dancing around that. No, no, no. We don't want to get into that. Well, listen to Governor Abbott on Fox News Channel with Sean Hannity. And listen to the strident way in which he is saying that Texas has got to crack down because the federal government is, in his estimation, not doing its job. The only climate that's changed, Sean, is uh, the the refusal to enforce the immigration laws of the United States. Uh, You saw what happened four years ago when we had the lowest illegal immigration in 40 years. And that's because President Trump put in place four policies. The Remain in Mexico policy, the Title 42 policy, the end of catch and release, and building the border wall. When Biden came in, he changed all of that. And he created a climate, quite literally, that attracted people from across the entire world from more than 150 countries. Texas is the only government in the United States of America that's stepping up, trying to stop illegal immigration by building our own border wall, by putting up the razor wire. And by the way, Joe Biden is also challenging me in the United States Supreme Court right now, Sean, trying to uh, tear down the razor wire that Texas put up to stop illegal immigration. So Jeremy, this is playing out in multiple courts as the uh, feds and Texas lock horns in, in, you know, in these legal battles. He mentioned the uh, lawsuit over the razor wire, but then we also have the lawsuit about the floating border buoy system. Uh, We now have this lawsuit about Senate Bill 4, which is the, you know, the law that we've been talking about where the cops can round people up. Uh, And then of course you have the governor busing migrants to quote-unquote sanctuary cities like Chicago and New York. And you were telling me about the um, the mayors in those places who were getting pretty upset about this. 
Yeah, you saw it at first during the break when, you know, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, you know, he's been fighting with Governor Abbott now for almost two solid years about this. You know, they've been trolling each other, you know, at events in each other's state, even, you know, you know, complaining about what the other is or isn't doing. Uh, and so in, it, so it's been kind of ongoing. But over the, you know, the holiday break, Eric Adams uh, instituted new policies that require every single charter bus that has migrated migrants, not just from Texas, but he was clearly aiming at Texas. He wants those buses to have to check in 36 hours before they make it into New York City, and they're only allowed to drop off in certain locations at certain times, uh, because he said Abbott and his buses have been dropping people off at all hours of the day and night uh, without any sort of support around them. And so he put these new regulations in, which of course... You know, Governor Abbott was quick to respond and fire back at him. So it's kind of a continuation of this like battle. But then we heard other you know mayors in other states starting to speak up about this. Yeah. So Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson says that they haven't gotten any heads up or received any coordination from Abbott's office, and it's been very frustrating. Well, what we have is clearly uh, clearly an international and federal crisis that local governments are being asked to subsidize. And this is unsustainable. Um, none of our local economies are um, positioned to be able to carry on such a mission. And what we have attempted to do um, is to create structure and some coordination around this, this humanitarian crisis. And unfortunately, uh, the governor of Abbott, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, um, is determined to continue to sow seeds of chaos. And last night, and in several nights before, um, a number of buses continued to arrive in the city of Chicago and throughout the country without any coordination. And now he's taken on um, this very dangerous task of placing individuals on airplanes and flying them into our various cities. Um, this is certainly a matter of, of not just uh, of our national security, but it's the type of chaos that this governor is committed um, to, to, to administering. You know, I think what um, is fair to say about Governor Abbott's efforts on this over the last couple of years is that what started out as a stunt, and it absolutely was, it, it has changed the conversation about this with some people who were not talking about it before. It's forced some Democratic voices to weigh in on this in a way they didn't have to do before, um, Jeremy. Um, now, I'm not saying that Abbott is helping the situation. He's certainly not. I think Mayor uh, Johnson is correct to say that what Abbott is doing is taking a chaotic situation and making it even worse. And it, I mean, look at the hypocrisy from some of the same folks who were angry with the Biden administration for providing flights to migrants to other parts of the country from the border such that they could be in, you know, in a place that would, you know, maybe have services that they might be able to, uh, you know, be, be helped by. Um, now you have Abbott, those people who were mad about Biden doing that, you have the same people cheering Abbott for putting people on flights to Chicago and wherever else. Um, and they have, and when you press people about this, when you, when you try to have any discussion about it and you say, well, why are you pissed at Biden for doing that? But you're happy with Abbott doing that. They struggle with an answer. And I think when it comes to this discussion, which is very complex, one of the things that uh, has become really apparent and maybe more exacerbated in the last couple of years about immigration is that now two people can do the two leaders, two elected officials can do the exact same thing 
they can take the exact same action. And if you're a partisan Democrat or a partisan Republican, you will approve or disapprove of that action based on the partisan, uh, you know, flag that the person has who did it. Right. I mean, and you don't even, you don't even feel the need to explain why you like one and not the other. So that's not helpful at all. The other thing I would say about what Abbott is doing is he's, he, look, and I, I said a version of this before, he's just not helping. It, this is, this is, um, this is once, this is a, this is a physical manifestation of the politics of grievance. He's pointing out a problem, which is an issue. It is a problem. You know, we have, uh, you know, people coming in uh, to the country in a way that is, and this is what people have a problem with is, is disorderly, if you will. People want an orderly system. But Abbott isn't proposing any solution. When he's on Fox News Channel or wherever else, what does he say the government needs to do? He says, we just need to enforce the laws that are on the books. The laws that are on the books have not been updated since the 1980s. They don't reflect the current reality of immigration in the United States in any way, shape, or form. And I'd, I would also say this, and I saw this alluded to uh, in an article earlier today, is pretty interesting, where uh, someone who has followed all this stuff very closely for decades said this. They said, you know, it's unfortunate that in the United States, the only metric that people really tend to look at when it comes to migration is what is the number of people who are coming in. And it's thought of in this overly simplistic way, where if there are more people coming, and this is why I think this sort of nativist language really resonates with a certain crowd, is that the the metric for success or failure on the border is only looked at through the lens of, of it being bad if more people come in, and it's good if less people come in, or no people come in, or whatever, rather than have a discussion that is more dynamic about our uh, laws surrounding asylum, and who should be allowed in based on their claims and our laws about, uh, you know, what they call, um, you know, sort of merit-based immigration where people come in because they are, uh, you know, equipped with certain skills, you know, to take certain jobs in the United States that other people maybe aren't filling or don't have the skills to fulfill. Um, and chain migration where you have, you know, stories of families who are migrating from different countries around the world. All of that is a much harder discussion than the, just the simplistic discussion that Abbott and others want to have, which is just to say, hey, the fewer people who are coming in, the better. The more people coming in, the worse. And that's the only way they want to look at it. Well, I think Governor Abbott's done two things particularly, one intended and one unintended with this busing situation particularly. Uh, let's first look at like what he intended, obviously, was to, you know, and he said this early on, like he wants the northern cities to see the flow that Texas is having to see every day, right? And it's like, and so he started doing these buses. But it's worth noting, and he himself has even said this, and one of those trips to New York City, when, you know, Eric Adams was really complaining, I want to say back in September, Abbott pointed out that, like, mm -hmm. look, Texas hasn't sent that many people compared to what y'all are getting. You know, at the time, you know, like, New York City's got about 150,000, you know, migrants in their you know, housing system that they're trying to care for right now uh, that kind of came in the last, you know, since last spring. It's like, so that's the influx you're dealing with. Texas has only bust 90,000 people to the whole country. You know, so, so the flow of migration, you know, in buses from Texas isn't just from Governor Abbott. You know, it's from other sources too. So the intended part is him wanting to put pressure on these Democratic mayors to kind of see what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, he accomplished that, right? The unintended, 
you know, effort that he has done has kind of struck at a deeper kind of issue, right? So we've had this trickle of migration happening for years. Like, you know, granted, you know, it ebbs and flows, what have you. Of course. Mm-hmm. The, these folks were going to New York City and Washington, D.C. already. They were going to Chicago because that's where their jobs, that's where they know they're going to be accepted, you know, more than they're not going to to live in Del Rio. No offense right. to Del Rio or Eagle Pass. That's not their chosen destination. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get to these places, and they've always been trying to do that. That fact has been lost on people. And I think by Abbott, you know, having these buses basically speed and quickly add to that, you know, repopulation, if you will, of migrants getting to New York City. I think it, it's actually kind of showed that the, you know, the migration issue has been going on for a long time and nobody's been talking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and at some point, the federal government, and I, this is where I do agree with Abbott on this front, at some point, the federal government has to recognize that this trickle is having an impact on not just Texas, but all these other cities. And there is like, there are ways to make this system work better. But like you said, it's a more global discussion about right. migration, what's causing it, who's coming. And like the one thing that drives me crazy, and I've said this on air a lot of times here, but like the one thing that drives me crazy about this whole issue is that there's such a Venezuelan issue kind of built into the numbers we're seeing right now at the border. Uh, it's such a Cuban issue and a Haitian issue. It's, mm-hmm. it's really like if you take those three nations alone, it's a big part of what we're seeing. Nobody wants to talk about those elements of it, you know, it seems like, or at least it's getting lost in the, the discussion about it. <laughs> and like, and imagine if I could have been on Stephen A. Smith's show and told him, oh, wait a minute, sir, you're talking about this like it's our Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters. You know, what happens if they're, you know, from Haiti and they have the skin color of just like a black person yeah, yeah. in America? It's like they too are going to be subject to this new Texas law that will allow a police officer in you know South Texas to see somebody who's black and make the assumption, oh, he must be from Haiti. He might be here illegally. Yeah, but here's a, that's a, that's an interesting him. point, though, Jeremy, because here's, here's what's interesting about that. They're not going to do that. The cops are not going to do that, right? They're not going to see a black person and think, oh, they're probably not legally in the country. They're going to do that with Hispanic people. Right. And that, again, that's why the law is stupid. You know, I mean, you're going to take you're going to take a and again, people have not been able to answer this question. The supporters of it have not been able to answer this question. What is it that would make the cop think you're not legally in the country? It would be that they are brown. It would be that they speak, you know, maybe only Spanish or they speak broken English. It it might be those things, but they can never answer the it, it might be the kind of job they're doing. That the, and this came up in the Texas Senate debate. It might be that they are doing roofing work in Dallas, which you don't see a lot of white people doing that sometimes. But you, but but that is generally not who you see doing that work, right? And so that's why laws like this are flawed. And so I think that yeah, Abbott's making this point that we have this problem, that there's this issue, um, and that there aren't resources available for people in these places that they cross into Texas, you know, from Mexico, and then you know, they continue on to somewhere else, like you're saying, he's making, the pro- he's making the point that there's a problem. But he and others who are so stridently making this point that there's a, quote, problem 
are not advocating any real solution. They're only taught they're not they're not talking about the global discussion you're talking about. Instead, they're saying we just need to enforce the border. And how long can we do that in Texas where when it's not working? You know, I mean, by their own metric, it's not working. There are all of these people coming in anyway. They have spent twelve billion dollars of Texas tax dollars in Operation Lone Star, that much at least, and it continues to go on. Um, and now we have this new law where they're going to round people up. And none of this addresses any of the root causes of why the people are leaving those countries that you're talking about. Yeah. And if anything, some of it has almost incentivized it, I would dare say, right? Like if if you're, you know, in, you know, some of these you know Central American countries where people are fleeing or in, you know, you know, in South America from Venezuela, words probably getting out on the street that if you can get to Texas, Texas will bus you to New York City where you really want to be. It's like that is like that is the message. Like the cartels know how to kind of use that information and the people on the ground who aren't cartels like know how to use that information. They are telling people if you get there, you can get to New York City or mm -hmm. to Washington, D.C., you know, like if you just get to the board because Texas will help you get there. It's like despite everything you're seeing, you know, with the razor wire, it's like yeah. once you get across and you get processed, Texas, like try to get on one of those Texas buses. It's a, it's a weird kind of incentive. Like, and, and I, I kind of like you throw your hands up at some point. It's like, you know, you know, Abbott's saying the Biden administration is incentivizing, but hasn't mm -hmm. he just incentivized him? Of course. It too? Right. It's like, yeah. and, and, and there's sometimes I'd like to kind of like, boy, you know, if politics were different, like to get Abbott and Biden in a room just like mm -hmm. with nobody else around so they can kind of hash out like a real solution, like rather than just kind of throwing things from a distance you know, at each other. You know, it's like there'd be kind of a different world. But that's a, that's a fake politics that doesn't exist in today's era. You know, it's like if you remember, like, after the freeze, there was a point where, you know, Joe Biden and Greg Abbott were smiles and shaking mm -hmm. hands, like, yeah. you know, trying to help each other out. Very briefly, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so long gone. It's like it's, it, it may as well have been 100 years ago. It, it could have been like, you know— you know, Harding and <laughs> some other, you know, governor, uh, you kind of work out a deal at this point, but like, so yeah, we're just in a spot where I think, uh, these guys, like we, we just need some sort of broader conversation about like, you know, is there a way to kind of deal with the crisis in Venezuela in Nicaragua that would help us, you know? And I think that's what, like, you see that happen this last week where Mexico has said that they're starting to do repeat, repatriation flights mm -hmm. back yeah. to Venezuela. You know, so they're they're trying to help. And that, that, of course, that's pressure from the U.S. government to kind of do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the solution is probably going to have its roots, right? If, if Mexico can stop people from Venezuela for coming through, again, I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do because you still you go back to that humanitarian question. If people are fleeing Venezuelan, a socialist dictatorship, like where America used to be on the side of being against that, you know, including the Republicans. It's like if we were really for that, wouldn't we want those people to find refuge in the United States? Don't they have the best asylum claims of anybody in the world right now, you know, leaving Venezuela? Yeah. It seems like it on paper. Well, with Abbott and Biden not talking 
to each other. Um, you have to wonder if the Republican leadership in Washington and Biden are talking to each other. And the answer is sort of, right? They've been in some talks about immigration and border security. Speaker Mike Johnson, as you noted on Twitter, got a look at the border this week. He led a delegation of uh, you know, uh, members of Congress who I'm sure at least some of them have never been to the Texas-Mexico border. They were also in Eagle Pass this week. And uh, Speaker Johnson told CNN's Jake Tapper that it is a humanitarian crisis. He said that's correct. But he said the $14 billion package that's been proposed by the Biden administration will not help the situation. We walked through the centers today, Jake. It would it would make the average American citizen cry to see what's happening here. And it must stop. Right. Which is why uh, some people are saying, why not pass the $14 billion supplemental uh, bill that, that President Biden has put before you to at least try to help with some of these that, issues? That won't solve that no, won't solve any of the problems no. I just articulated. Right, that no, won't no. do a darn thing. Well, no. it, I'm, I'm sure the people in the Border Patrol agents that, that you're with think it might do something, at least in terms of making their job a little easier for the next month nope. or so. No, no, actually don't, they don't. They don't want the $14 billion? No, no. I just quoted to you the deputy chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, and he said he doesn't need more buckets. In other words, he doesn't need more personnel to handle the flow. He needs to turn the flow off. That's what we're talking about. This is not about sending more money down here. It's about changing the policy. And the White House seems not to understand that. But the policy that Speaker Johnson and Governor Abbott and other Republicans are uh, championing those policies have to do with telling people don't come to the United States at all with the Remain in Mexico policy by building a wall and once again only talking about enforcement of laws that we have had on the books for decades. Now, I will give Republicans credit for something. Even though what they're saying isn't helpful, I mean, I'm being ch- charitable with that, even, even though what they're saying does not help the situation, they do have a message about it. They, you know, they... They, they go on TV and radio and they can talk nonstop a blue streak about immigration and border security, right? And they've, they've gotten very good at this over the years. The Democrats, if I asked you what's the Democratic position on all of this stuff, there is one, but it's a lot harder to articulate. It's not, it's, as you have said many times, Jeremy, the Democrats don't come to the table with, with the simple solution for a very complex problem. Instead, their solution would be a lot more complex and therefore harder to explain, although some things are not that hard to explain. You may have seen this guy, uh, Ron Filipkowski. He's a commentator, a a lawyer, and he goes on MSNBC and everywhere. And he said that uh, Democrats are just shying away from this when they actually do have a story to tell. Communicate the issues. They have to communicate their policy. I also heard today uh, KJP, the the press secretary, talked about how many people have been deported since May. I was actually somewhat stunned to hear the number. Even the, the Fox uh, the Fox reporter who asked the question was surprised to hear the number because it was a lot. But that that hasn't been communicated by anybody with the, the administration. So so that's a, a big part of it is, is just getting out there, explaining what the policy is, explaining what they're doing. And that's why I titled the article, Democrats don't seem to want to talk about this issue. But I think if they do, they can really undercut a lot of the effectiveness that the Republicans are making with this issue. I think he's wrong. Now, one thing that he got right is that there have been a lot of deportations under President Biden. Uh, I went and I did the quick math on this. The last two years, Jeremy, we're approaching a quarter million people who have been deported by Biden. And 142,000 of those were last year alone in fiscal year 2023. Okay. Here's what I think he's wrong about. He thinks that the Democrats can go around and talk about how tough they're being. 
on the border. I'm old enough to remember that when Barack Obama was president, that there were liberals who called him, quote, the deporter in chief, close quote. This issue is so much harder for Democrats because people in their coalition don't all agree about this, right? On the, on the Republican side, it's easy. Every, just about every Republican voter at this point, certainly every, every voter in a primary, they all think that you should just do what Abbott's saying, which is just enforce the border laws that we have, just enforce the immigration laws that we have. On the Democratic side, you get those who would like to see more border enforcement. There, there are certainly some Democrats who feel that way. Um, but then you also have the Castro brothers who would talk about it in a completely different way. They would, they would focus more on the humanitarian aspect that, you know, that you were talking about. Um, there are those who want to see, you know, sweeping immigration reform happen. Um, and the real challenge for Democrats, I think on this, and whenever I say this, I get some messages from people who really disagree with me. The real challenge for Democrats is that they come off as, um, advocating for people who cannot vote anyway, right? All of the people who are angry. And what I mean by that is, like, you know, if you have Democrats saying that we need to be more humane to migrants, which I agree with, but those people can't vote. In the meantime, you have Republicans who are saying that you need to kick all these people out of here. And one of their conspiracy theories is that the Democrats want to allow all these people in so that eventually they'll be Democratic voters, which is just not going to happen. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, I mean, you, you could even write the law such that a lot of those folks would never be even eligible for citizenship and therefore could not vote. But you don't have to have a quick path to citizenship for people to have some kind of immigration reform. You could have some kind of legal status for people. You could start with that and eventually offer some citizenship to people. But think of it this way. If it's a, if it's a long path to citizenship for certain folks, and I think, you know, like for example, the DACA kids, they ought to get citizenship like tomorrow. I think you could take things on a, a you know, case by case basis, but, but for people who are in a different situation and maybe have been here for years and they need to quote unquote earn their citizenship. I think there's nothing wrong with that. In the meantime, Republicans could take the time to convince those people to vote for Republicans. They don't have to naturally just be democratic voters. It doesn't even make any sense. Um, it, unless you're thinking about this from a very nativist and dare I say racist view that people who are not white are always going to vote for Democrats. We have seen that that's not true. We know that that's not true. We know, I mean, based on elections in Texas, think about when George W. Bush was ascendant, when he was the governor and then going to the White House. If you look at the election results, screw polling, look at the election results. Election after election cycle, Jeremy, you saw that the Hispanic vote totals among you know, for, for Republicans were going up and up and up because of the policies championed by Republicans like Bush and the way he talked about it. What did he say about it? He said that family values don't end at the Rio Grande and we need to welcome people in. And you saw the Hispanic vote share for Republicans rising and it started to go down again in about, what, about 2007 when Bush pushed for an immigration reform uh, package and it was the people within his own party who turned on him and saw Bush as sort of the apostate about this issue. Why is he wanting to welcome all these people in? to our country and give them citizenship and give them legal status. It was Republicans who were blasting a Republican president for trying to do something about this in the, you know, in the 2000s. 
that didn't work out, and that was the beginning. I'm sorry to say that that, that revolt within the Republican Party against Bush, that's where the Tea Party was gestated. They didn't call themselves the Tea Party yet, but that was all the same people. Later, when uh, President Obama came in, those people, then they started to call themselves the Tea Party. And as Trump came on the scene, they started to call themselves MAGA and now Ultra MAGA. It's these people who stay the same level of pissed about the border, no matter what the facts are, no matter how many people are being deported by the Democratic president, that doesn't matter. No matter how many people are coming in, like you said, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes there's more people than other times there's less people. But whatever the facts are on the ground, whatever the migration patterns are, whatever's happening, these people stay the same level of angry about the border every single day. And to bring it full circle here, to refute what Philip Kowski is saying about how, oh, Democrats should just tell, talk about what they're doing. On the Democratic side, those voters only get angry about the border if certain things happen. So for example, remember under President Trump, those people all got very angry about family separations. We saw those pictures from the border where the families are being you know, ripped apart. Uh, sometimes you will see these folks get amped up when you see the picture of a baby being passed underneath razor wire along the Texas-Mexico border. They'll get amped about it then when there are certain, you know, things that will happen, that there, there are, you know, things in the news that get them pissed about it. But, but their anger about immigration and the border, it ebbs and flows with the realities of immigration. On the Republican side, they just stay angry no matter what. Well, first, I love that you brought Ron Filipowski up because I've known him for 20 years and his office in Sarasota was literally two blocks. Mm -hmm. He was two blocks from me uh, where I worked in Sarasota. So it's nice to have uh, an old friend kind of thrown out there. But, uh, but you know, I think it kind of goes to like, you know, you know who said it really well was Tony Gonzalez, the congressman from San Antonio who kind of spearheaded the whole uh, speaker's uh, visit to Eagle Pass this week. Uh, yeah. He had kind of like he was saying on Twitter, and I think he said it on a TV interview as well, which is like Republicans need to keep pushing this issue because it helps bring the party back together after a very fractious year, right? Like all the Republicans kind of agree that we need more border security. There is no outliers. You know, they all want to talk about this issue. They might, you know, soften the, the language here and there, but generally speaking, it's a winning issue. But then mm -hmm. he made the case that you just pointed out is that not only does it bring the Republicans together, it splinters the Democrats because they don't have right. a unifying message. He said the quiet part out loud for everybody to kind of understand. You know, this, you know, if the Republicans stay on this issue, they don't excommunicate the Speaker of the House. You know, it's like that's kind of like, you know, clearly Kevin McCarthy didn't get that memo. He ended up getting into all kinds of other fights. Right. Uh, and border security was always in that mix. But that was kind of the pressure point. Like if he had just kind of turned it all to kind of that topic, you can kind of see how there's more unity around this issue. You had like if you saw the pictures of the members of Congress who were at the, uh, this thing down in Eagle Pass, it was kind of a nice mix of some of the more moderate members and the more, you know, intensely Republican. Like we're mm -hmm. talking like, you know, the spectrum was there, which kind of shows you how that all comes together. But then you look at the Democratic side and that spectrum just in Texas, before you even step foot outside of Texas, is so vast. Like you point out, right. the distance between Henry Cuellar and Julian Castro uh, or... Uh, Beto O'Rourke mm -hmm. uh, is vastly different on this issue than Sylvia Garcia and Lizzie mm -hmm. Fletcher. It's like 
this topic is going to get 17 different answers from 17 different members of Congress, right. you know, if you ask them on the Democratic side. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. just on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, it all is almost always the same answer. Build the wall. Remain in Mexico. Period. It's, again, it's that simple answer to the complex problem emerging itself constantly on this issue, which makes it difficult for Democrats. Because like you said, they don't have the simple answer that people can rally around. Mm -hmm. There is a simple answer, which is let's take care of these women and children who are coming across the border, particularly. Yeah. It's like there is like a human compassion that every single person, even when Mike Johnson was having the press conference, there was a family that was coming across the river. And it was like it's a six year old and an eight year old who were coming across the river with a mom. It's like while the press conference was going on. The video of it is it just kind of tells you the issue. Yeah. They're talking about building the wall and putting all this razor wire to stop those little kids from getting to the shoreline and then having a better life in the US than they did wherever they came from. We I don't know where they came from. I don't know if they, they were Venezuelans or Nicaraguans or, or where, but but that's the point. It's like that the democratic issue is within them. It's like how mm -hmm. do you get that issue? to a broader audience that people kind of get behind you on when the Republican message is so simple, right? You know, right? Where it's just like, build a wall. And that simple, seems to resonate. Uh, well, simple, and they can, uh, these guys have gotten so expert at it, they can get to the border and immigration, uh, they, they can get it, they can go there in either one move or two moves from any other issue. You, you would have thought last year, that when Republicans, and th this started on, I, I probably started on talk shows on Fox News and, and talk radio, where, and you'd saw these memes online where people would say, why are we defending the Ukraine border when we don't take care of our own border? The, and at that time, you would think, well, what, is, what does one have to do with the other? These are, these are different issues and they need to be addressed separately. But now in Washington, that's the conversation. Right. The Republicans are using the aid for Ukraine as leverage to try to get what they want when it comes to border security in the United States. Now, with all of that um, nastiness and disagreement and anger about our laws on immigration in Texas and what's happening uh, in Washington with those with those discussions, it might surprise you to know who was trying to sound a bipartisan note about the border this week. And that was Senator Ted Cruz. What was the, was this happening uh, earlier today, Jeremy, that he was on the border um, uh, talking about international commerce? Yeah, he was talking about the big international bridge in Laredo. You know, there's an eight-lane highway that we have basically oh, yeah. between Mexico and the U.S. in Laredo that they're trying to build this bridge up. You know, They're trying to go from eight lanes to 18 lanes is mm -hmm. what they want to get to eventually because that's how much commerce is coming across the border. Uh, I think Ted Cruz himself said it's uh, $800 billion of economic you know, power between mm -hmm. these two nations. So, of course, everybody loves Mexico <laughs> and what they're doing on the border, right? <laughs> well, when you're talking about um, the commerce that is that happens between Texas and, and Mexico and the United States and Mexico, and just, just take Texas, uh, you know, for a second in isolation, that's our biggest trading partner, no question. And 18 lanes might sound crazy, but 
we've got some freeways in Houston that look like that. And we don't have as much international, you know, travel happening. <laughs> There's some, right? Because somebody just drove all the way from Laredo up 59, or now 69. Um, but when it comes to our trade with our trading partner, uh, we can't get enough lanes down there. You know that in McAllen and Brownsville, where those trucks are coming through from Mexico into the United States, not only do they not have enough lanes of freeway, in some instances, they're having to stop at stoplights, right, in, in the smaller towns, which is insane. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars worth of goods coming through. Now, Cruz was asked about border security at this news conference where he was talking alongside Henry Cuellar, who you mentioned earlier, and some other uh, leadership uh, there in Laredo. And very interesting, Ted Cruz did not take the bait about talking about an immigration crackdown. Instead, he wanted to stay focused on the bridges. Security is an issue that is incredibly important. I spend a lot of time on it, but I want to keep today focused on the topic of, of, of this, this event, which is the legislation that was just signed into law that is, that is going to produce thousands of jobs and billions of dollars of commerce for the state of Texas and for South Texas in particular. Jeremy, when you saw that, what did you think? Well, look, the first thing that comes to mind is money. <laughs> you know, rules everything still, right? You know, yeah, it's like, you know, you can talk all you want about border security. You know, it's like we want to build walls, but my goodness, we still want that money flowing in from Mexico. Right. Uh, and so you see, you know, Ted Cruz, you know, working on legislation, which Democrats and other Republicans in Texas to kind of you know, make sure that the, the 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 permitting process for these bridges speed up. He did make a point, you know, it's like, and he has been accurate in that when the Biden administration got into office, they changed the process in which, you know, bridges, international bridges specifically get approved. You know, they just, they put more permitting, uh, environmental you know, permitting, you know, upfront that has to get done before the bridges can go through, which was creating the delays. And, to, you know, the legislation that he, Henry Cuellar, John Cornyn, and really the rest of the, you know, Texas delegation worked on uh, ends up making, you know, speeds that permitting up. So, it, you know, we don't have to wait for all the environmental permits to happen for the bridges and the bridge work to start happening. So, yeah. so he is correct in that. It's like, yeah, that, but, it, but you just can't help but think, Man, this is an election cycle thing, yes. right? You know, this there you is, go. we see okay. this from now Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see this from Ted Cruz all the time. When you start off an election cycle, even numbered years, every six years, he starts talking about being a bipartisan, you know, beacon for the state of Texas, right? You right. know, it's like this is not the image I think a lot of Texans kind of associate with them. But he, it's not just this, but like, you know, you'll remember on the you know, so this bill that he was touting. Uh, this legislation was wrapped up into the National Defense Authorization Act. You know, mm -hmm. this is the legislation that Ted Cruz voted against almost every single year of his existence, right? You know, he made it a point to vote against the NDAA for all kinds of reasons. Not this year. This year, he voted for mm -hmm. the bipartisan NDAA. It had this legislation in it. Uh, and so, like, all of a sudden, he is Mr. Bipartisanship on mm -hmm. this issue. And later on today, on Thursday here, as we tape this, he's going to be having a press conference touting legislation he got, you know, tucked into that same NDAA to help deal with the CHIPS Act, which is that semiconductor law. Mm -hmm. Reminder, 
Ted Cruz voted against the semiconductor law. He voted against all that. You know, yet here he is touting it as a bipartisan success story. Again, he, he, he has gone fully into bipartisanship mode and trying to convince us, you know, he can work with both Democrats and Republicans. You know, I'm not the partisan guy that so many of y'all almost voted me out of office over. Yeah, he is a master of GOP primary politics in Texas. It's a little trickier when he's trying to be bipartisan, uh, but we have seen it. And it also speaks to the um, complexity of South Texas politics. I think that, I think that um, Cruz and Abbott understand that, and Abbott certainly should have learned it after he followed the lead of uh, a failed former candidate, Don Huffines. You remember when Huffines was saying, just shut all the bridges down. Well, you remember how that went. Trucks backed up forever and prices for things in grocery stores either going through the roof or you couldn't find things in grocery stores that you normally would be able to get. Um, but the commerce along the border in, in Texas is so significant. A lot of that's passed through, right, for the people on, on the border. They don't see a lot of it, but there is some. And we saw another South Texas politician have a little bit of, a, I'm going to call it a micro scandal this week. Let me, I'm going to give you this uh, information, Jeremy. You, you, you know about Myra Flores, the former congresswoman. Yep. Who was only in office a little bit longer than Shelley Sakula Gibbs. That's a deep cut in Texas politics. Yep. <laughs> Some of you are going to look that up. Most of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Look, look it up. Put Houston uh, Congresswoman Gibbs <laughs> into and put and and also uh, do yourself a favor when you're googling it. Um, just also search for New York Times. Some amazing things will come up. Myra Flores, who of course lost her seat uh, in Congress and was the first one to really scream on social media that there was no red wave. Right, when, when Ted Cruz and everybody else was was talking about how there's going to be a red wave election, and you know you're going to have Republicans elected everywhere, and instead that didn't happen at all. Um, she was so angry. Well, she got in a little trouble on social media because, and I don't know why you would do this. I have a theory, but I don't I don't have the full answer. She got in some trouble because she was stealing photos of Mexican food from other people's social media. And then using the photos as if she was the one who made the food. And you know, and, and everything has to be a gate, right? Watergate, scandal, whatever that some people were calling this grub gate. Oh boy. Because yeah. Okay. I'm reading I'm reading from uh Current Revolt, which is a which is a a right wing publication. This is not some liberals who went after Myra Flores. It also makes this interesting. Currentrevolt.com very conservative in their point of view. I mean, you talk about MAGA or whatever. These are very conservative people. Uh, Tony Ortiz uh, is one of their writers there. He I think he runs the thing. He says that there are two things that Texans know as fact. Politicians lie about stupid stuff and Mexican food is tasty. Both of these facts collided yesterday in what many are referring to as Grubgate. It's almost like he's saying... You know, like a lot of really smart people are calling it Grubgate. Myra, <laughs> Myra Flores, the former congresswoman and current candidate for U.S. House District 34, 
posted a photo of what looked like delicious gorditas de masa with the caption, the ranch life with family is the best. And she also clarified the type of food in the photo, implying that she both took the photo and made the dish, which apparently she has done a lot. Apparently, Jeremy, and this right-wing website went and looked this up. They dug into it, a real expose. They found out that she's done this at least four or five times on her social media that she has, you know, grabbed a photo from somebody else's, just, you know, screenshotted it, saved the photo, and then used it on her Twitter or her Instagram or whatever and acted as if she's some kind of a, you know, a foodie. You could say she's a fake foodie if she's not really making this food. And look, it's silly and stupid. There's no consequence for something like this. Although I would say, I'm just trying to take this in a thoughtful direction. It seems that Congresswoman Flores, that her uh, her career as a, as a chef is a mirage. And I would say, so is her candidacy. Here's why I'm saying that. Because as you know, the, she's running for Congress as a Republican in a Democratic district. She's raising money from people around the country, once again, trying to make this case that Republicans are going to be able to, you know, win in South Texas, which has traditionally been Democratic. It's been a big narrative that Republicans have pushed uh, across the country for a few years now, that South Texas is the next place that's really going to turn Republican. Uh, but the congressional map, Jeremy, as I see it after redistricting, and you were talking about this a little bit as well, it's set. She can't win that, right? I, don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think she can win that race. And I don't think that, just looking at the numbers, that for any of the congressional seats in this state right now, after redistricting, they're all, if they're Democratic right now, they're going to be Democratic this year. If they're Republican this year, they're going to be Republican this year. Think about the way that Republicans have to run in South Texas, even when it's a swing seat. Now, Congresswoman Flores still has some of her signs, uh, the billboards and yard signs and stuff up from the last time she ran. And you know what's missing from her signs? I was, I was in, uh, in the Valley some over the Christmas break. What's missing from her campaign signs is the word Republican. Because in South Texas, that's not a brand that you run under, right? It doesn't work. You have, what, what's on her campaign signs, it's things like you know, God, country, family, that sort of stuff, appeals to values, issues. Uh, but any anywhere else in Texas, if somebody's running as a Republican, what does it say on their yard sign and on their billboards? It says, conservative Republican for Congress or conservative Republican for Texas House or Texas Senate or whatever it is. They can run on the Republican brand. In South Texas, you can't really do that. Um, and I don't see where much on much is going to change with that. There is potentially one state Senate seat that coming up this fall could be swingy, if you will, uh, in South Texas, that, that one Republican could be able to take out a Democrat down there. I'll get into more on, on that later. I think there are some uh, state House seats that are similarly situated. There's one that's held by a Republican now in South Texas. I would say that if this is a Trump year, which it looks like it's going to be, all indications are, uh, you know, unless something dramatically changes, that Trump is going to be the nominee at the top of the ticket. That means for any districts that might be considered uh, swing districts at all in this state, they're probably going to swing toward Democrats. All of the polling indicates that. And again, screw polling, all the election results indicate that, right? Whenever Trump has been at the top of the ticket or been in office, especially in 2018, that has accrued to the benefit 
of the minority party in this state. Yeah, if I were a Democrat, as as crazy as it sounds, you want, if you're running for Congress or for the U.S. Senate, you want to see Donald Trump on the other side. Because right. uh, it does help you know, your numbers, you know, in if if there were any competitive congressional districts, that's what we're talking about. And like, really, it's like and you got to go back to like, you know, in you know, 2018 and 2020, which seems like a lifetime ago. But really, it's like, look how competitive those years were. You know, it's like you saw so many you know congressional battles, you know, that were like legitimate swing states or swing you know districts in Houston, San Antonio, you know, up in Dallas. So like there were a lot of good fights out there. You had like Republicans and Democrats, even in safe areas with competitive races. So there was a lot of energy in the election cycle. But look what redistricting did. You know, you see that Republicans in the Texas legislature ended up dealing with Democrats to shore up both parties like so you see like there was clearly deal struck to okay we'll make it easier for lizzie fletcher in houston to win her re-election you know because it'll help us if we put more democrats in her district and yep. get them the hell out of troy nails district because mm -hmm. you know troy nails like he's in a district that or he had been in a district that was you know really reachable for a democrat in this type of election cycle except they carved out you know, they carved up, you know, Fort Bend County into so many pieces and took the Democratic pieces out and stuffed them in to Lizzie Fletcher's district. So the voters, again, were just, you know, cut up. But you saw that happen everywhere else on the map, too. Mm -hmm. You know, Republicans yeah. in Texas went a very different way than Republicans in other states who were like, hey, let's make more competitive seats and, right. like, trust that we can pull this off. They were like, no, 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 let's just shore up everybody so nobody's competitive. <laughs> and so this is the first time in a long time that I'm looking at all the big national prognosticators. You know, mm -hmm. y'all may have heard of like things like the Cook Political Report yeah. or, uh, you know, Stuart Rothenberg and, you know, Inside Politics uh, or Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. All those things typically had Texas races on the list. Think of like mm -hmm. Will Hurd for the longest time, you know, in the 23rd Congressional District was always on those lists as like going to have to fight like hell to hold on to his seat. You know, Tony mm -hmm. Gonzalez has a seat now. That seat had been competitive, but that's not even on the list anymore because they shorted up so much. They stuffed so many Republican, you know, leaning dis you know, voters into that district that now even that district isn't com considered as competitive as you know most of the competitive races in the nation. And so like we're just not even on the list. There's not a single Texas race on the toss-up list. And I I don't know when the last time that happened in my lifetime. You know, it's like mm -hmm. I'd have to kind of go back way deep into the into the 90s to maybe find a point where we didn't have a single competitive congressional race on that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this um has been a, a very interesting couple of years when it comes to all that, because in previous redistricting cycles, going back to, I'm going to go back 20 years on this, Republicans in this state and elsewhere, as you say, um, they would always try to increase the number of Republican office holders as much as they could in redistricting. Um, and this time around, they could have done that, but they chose not to. But there's a reason that they chose not to. When people ask you, Jeremy, is Texas becoming more competitive? Is it becoming more purple, if you will, somewhere between red and blue? The answer is that I that you don't have to ask me. That Republican leadership in Austin knows that it's becoming more competitive all across the state. And that's why the simple version of this to, to think about is 
that the reason that they didn't overextend themselves on, you know, trying to put more Republicans in Congress from Texas or more Republicans in the legislature, you know, in, in Texas, the reason they didn't do that is because of the explosive growth in places like Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, the suburbs around Austin and down in San Antonio as well and some other places, but it's especially in our suburban uh, areas, particularly those suburbs around uh, Fort, uh, Fort Bend County and up in DFW around Collin County and Denton County, where those communities look so much more, so much different from the way they did before. So many people coming in who are open to voting for Democrats. They And these are, this is why we call these swing districts, right? But what they did was they shored up the Republicans that they had. And therefore, in doing that, they shored up the Democrats that they had as well, right? Um, and by doing that, they are going to at least for the next two, four, maybe six years, be able to just keep the number of Republicans that they have. We saw a report just this week that we have such explosive growth in Texas that we are potentially on track in the next decade to add four new congressional districts in this state the next time they do redistricting. And believe me, Republicans will try to figure out how to make at least three of those Republican, right? But I, I, but I guarantee you that with the, with the kind of growth we're having, that they'll have to make at least one of them a Democratic district. And it's possible, based on what you said, Jeremy, that they might have to, they might have to split them and yep. say, okay, two people will, two of these will be Republicans and two of them will be Democrats. Well, and, and that is so right on mark. You know, think about what just happened. You know, it's like in this redistricting process, you know, to take people back, they ended up creating uh, a seat not just for Republicans. They had, they, we got two new congressional seats. They gave one to Republicans and they gave one to a Democrat. That is so unlike the Republicans of the 1990s and 2000s in Texas right. who would have been like, no way, both those seats are going to be Republican. But what they did is they basically created a, street, a seat for Greg Kassar you know, who ended up winning the seat, you know, like it, it, he ended up shifting into the San Antonio district and dog get moved back into Austin, you know, so obviously some details there just don't kind of line up right. But the moral of the story ultimately is the same, which is they basically created a seat for, for Greg Kassar rather than split those Democrats up into so many districts that another Democrat couldn't get elected, you know, because they were afraid if you did that, it would throw off the balance for Mike McCall, Chip Roy, uh, you know, you you name it. Everybody around the ring of Austin uh, would have been handed differently. They just basically gave up on Austin. They gave up on the idea that you could split Austin into so many pieces mm -hmm. that they could never have a Democrat represent them fully. It's like, yeah. and so they just gave up and go, okay, no, no, the numbers are so bad in the suburbs. You know, Williamson County now is starting to go Democratic. Hayes County is mm -hmm. going Democratic. You know, Fort Bend County in Houston is going Democratic. So they, we we don't have any more room. Like, we're right. just going to give the Democrats one big, hefty blue beacon <laughs> and hope that buys us time with the other congressional districts. And well, I think it, that'll happen again in the next redistricting. They're going to, when they get those four seats, they're going to realize we're going to need those to keep, you know, our Republicans who are in there in mm -hmm. office now. The growth that's happening in Texas um, is so rapid that, and we're adding people more than, than any other place. And there, it, there does have to be, and this is a whole another discussion. You could do a whole show about this if you wanted, um, although it'd be very boring. I'll admit that. <laughs> but the but getting an accurate count in that next census, which includes non-citizens, by the way, is how you get to having those four extra seats, right? And so this state has not engaged yet 
in what some other states have done, which is trying to ensure that California has done this and others, they try to ensure that every single person in the state gets counted because it doesn't just amount to greater representation in Congress. It also amounts to more federal dollars for different things and, and all of that. Um, but here's the, here's the, here's the long and short of this. And I started out by saying, this is one way you can tell that Texas is getting more purple and more competitive, if you will, at the statewide level. They can draw the lines for those districts that we're talking about, but the Texas borders are set, right? The state, they can't change the lines of the state. You can't redistrict or quote unquote gerrymander the state. It continues to get more competitive overall because of all the things that we're talking about. Here's another way that you know that. Remember, we told you before the year was over that for the for the very strict abortion crackdown we have in Texas, which now has women having to go to the courthouse and ask for permission for medically necessary abortions, that, that Ted Cruz doesn't even... There he was sounding uh, bipartisan on the border. On abortion, he didn't even want to answer the question. He was, we if go back and listen to the last show, he was basically running away from any reporter who would ask him about the case of a woman who has a, a, a pregnancy that involves um, what's probably a, a terminal diagnosis for, for the pregnancy. And he just said to call my press office. I'm not going to talk about that. He could take a lesson from the senior senator, John Cornyn, who did over the Christmas break get asked about this and finally did have an answer. Remember, by just like a few weeks ago, the last time we did the show, Cornyn just said, I'm not even a state official, so I don't, I'm not really going to talk about things I'm not responsible for. He found a different way to talk about it during a press conference about something else that was happening, again, as I said, over the Christmas break. Uh, NBC5 reporter in DFW, Phil Prazen, asked Cornyn about it and listened to what he said. And Jeremy, I think this on the abortion issue for this election year in 2024, this could be interpreted as a pep rally for both sides, for Democrats and Republicans. Take a listen. I do have thoughts about it. Um, number one, um, quite appropriately, the Supreme Court has said this is a state law matter. It's not, it's not uh, a, a federal issue. And so, quite appropriately, the Texas legislature has passed a law, which then the courts have been called upon to interpret. Uh, and of course, being a recovering judge myself, I appreciate the fact that uh, courts don't make law, they enforce the law the legislature's written. So I think what's happening now, at least it appears to me, that we're in a period of transition, where previously, because of Roe versus Wade, this was all decided, one size fits all at the national level, and now it's transitioning back to the states. And I think there's an important conversation going on between the voters in the various states and the, their elected representatives about where where the lines should be drawn. Um, and uh, so I, I certainly support that. Obviously, any individual case uh, can be a tragic circumstances like the one you mentioned. Um, and certainly we're, we, uh, we grieve for people who suffer those sorts of losses, but I think this is a matter that's going to have to be worked out over time in a conversation between state lawmakers and the voters. Now, when Cornyn says a conversation between lawmakers and the voters, what he means is elections. The message that voters can send to lawmakers is to either vote for them or not. 
They can have conversations with them. They can call their office. They can, you know, show up at events. They can talk to them during uh, campaign stops. Uh, you know, when when Texas House members or members of Congress are, and he's talking specifically about the legislature. So when House members or Texas state senators or their campaign workers are showing up uh, at people's doorsteps to ask for their vote, you know, it, leading up to the fall especially in some of those, you know, what I do believe, at least for legislative races, will be some of those swing districts. This is going to come up. These local races are eyeball to eyeball. People have to go talk to folks at, you know, if you're a Republican running somewhere, you know, if you have a, a you know competitive race, which again, there's not very many of them because of what redistricting, because of the redistricting we we're talking about. Um, but if you're a Republican, you have to go everywhere that the three voters might be having coffee and go talk to them, right? You've got to have your block walkers out there talking to people. I mean, think about the way that campaigns at a local level happen. It's primitive as in like the way that they used to sell vacuums door to door in the 1950s. They have to go knock on doors and talk to people. That's a, That can be an uncomfortable thing for anybody, right? I mean, that first of all, why is this person at my house? Why are they knocking on the door? Oh, and now they want to ask me to vote for somebody? And when I'm covering these campaigns, Jeremy, one of my favorite tactics to, to try to figure out what's really going on in these races is I'll say to the campaign, hey, can I go block walk with y'all? Because I want to know what people are saying when they knock on the door. I, I know what the campaigns are saying. I know what their literature says. I know what the pitch is from the candidate. But I want to hear the reaction from the voter at the door. And what did they ask them about? Because when they say, hey, tell me what your concerns are about state government. If you are going along for one of these block walks in suburban Texas, where they get, you know, a mom answers the door, this will come up. This abortion restriction, these these laws are going to come up and they're going to want Republicans to have an answer uh, about these exceptions. As you said during the last show, that's a very difficult discussion. There are simplistic ways to think about abortion restrictions. We just shouldn't have any abortions at all. That's kind of the way that our Republican leadership talks about it. Abbott, Patrick, and the rest. Patrick, at least, has said that, yeah, we, we are now sort of what Cornyn just said. We're now transitioning after Roe versus Wade, and so there are going to be some changes here and there. There was no appetite in the legislature last session and during multiple special sessions to do anything different about what has happened with abortion. So... Because, and I'm bringing this full circle again, because so few of those legislative races are competitive and we have basically one marquee statewide race this year, there's one person who's going to have to come up with an answer for this. He was running from reporters last year. He's going to have to have an answer for this. And that's Senator Ted Cruz. He's on the ballot. And this is a very tricky Issue. I mean, he can say he's pro-life all day long, but when you have women whose lives are at risk because they can't go get an abortion, which doctors are saying that they need, well, we're in a whole different world about all this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the fact that you uh, brought up door-to-door salespeople – particularly vacuum cleaners, it's like, it only makes me think about Willie Nelson. <laughs> so I get a, if you, if you remember the story about Willie Nelson, like he ended up selling vacuum cleaners and encyclopedias door to door before he tried this other thing called music, you know? So it's like, it kind of gets me back to There's that. There's a reason but, no one remembers that. Yeah, exactly. You know, he exactly. ended up as a musician. 
But anyway, so absolutely, we get a Willie Nelson reference in there. But but you know, but going back to Cruz, you know, you know, look at what he's potentially dealing with. You know, it's like this year is going to be so interesting because if Trump is really on that ballot as the Republican nominee, what mm-hmm. we know for a fact from the 2016 and 2020 elections is that suburban women, particularly, you know, you know, were leaving the Republican party and not voting for him. Uh, that is why, you know, you can look at like how Beto O'Rourke's campaign against Ted Cruz did, you know, sure, Beto was an energetic dude and all, but also you're kind of living in that environment in which in a Trump world, Republican suburban women were leaking out of the party, you know, it's like, and so Ted Cruz goes into the cycle potentially with Ted Cruz already or with, uh, uh, Donald Trump on the top of the ticket hurting, that vote, but then you have this issue of abortion rights, which is particularly important for suburban women as well, right? You know, so you get two elements that are potentially driving suburban women to the polls against Republican voters. Mm-hmm. So as much as it looks like redistricting and uh, even kind of the, the you know the mood of the nation, maybe it's not a big swing year. You never kind of quite know at the beginning of a cycle. You know, it's like you know I, I know people have heard me say this a hundred times, but really a, a year in politics is a lifetime. It's like we don't know what's coming. We don't know what else is going to happen in this year that could turn what seems like a ho hum election cycle into a all-out battle up and down mm-hmm. the line. So maybe Tony Gonzalez is in a fight for his life by the end of the year, and we just don't know it yet. It's like we just, you know, it'll take some time for this to develop. But I can tell you this: yeah. if this does get competitive, if Ted Cruz does struggle to win re-election, mm-hmm. that is a bad sign for where Republicans are going to be going in the next couple of cycles. Because yeah. it's usually towards the end of redistricting where the wheels start coming off of Republicans. Right. That's when Democrats start getting close in some districts that they shouldn't because of that population growth we've been talking mm-hmm. about in Texas yeah. and that voter registration growth in Texas. It's like, I, I got to tell you, the voter registration growth in Texas is ab normal. <laughs> what we've seen since 2018, we're approaching 4 million voters added just since 2018. To put that in context, remember, the previous decade, the voter registration was almost flat, even though the population was growing. Like we were stuck at 12 million registered voters for the longest time. Here we are, we're approaching 18 million, you know, at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and that's in an eight-year window, really, that has it's taken off. That influx of new voters, plus the population shift, plus Trump at the top of the ballot, plus a bunch of angry women, you know, mm-hmm. particularly on the abortion issue, and yep. you got all the triggers for a combustible election cycle. So yeah, as 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 you know, we kind of go into the cycle. Man, this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. The polls and you know. Po- prognosticators can tell you all kinds of stuff, but mm-hmm. until people start getting to that ballot box and we kind of know what they feel like, when, you know, who they're mad at, you know, first in March and then in November, it's like, until you know that, we just don't know how this is all going to sort out. So this is actually the most exciting time of the year for me as I kind of look at like, boy, what could happen still? Like lots of stuff could happen in this cycle. And thankfully you and I are going to be here to break it all down. Yeah, that's right. Now, one of the guys who is trying to save Republicans from some of that damage that you're talking about is interesting that you saw Ted Cruz earlier trying to be bipartisan. And it continues to be interesting, at least to me, that Congressman Chip Roy, who used to be Cruz's staffer, 
Roy continues to be this anti-Trump guy, um, which I think just puts the exclamation point on the fact that being pro-Trump or not has nothing to do with being conservative or not. It's a different thing. I hate to use the word cult, but, you know, at some point it's all about personality and not about policy. Uh, Roy continues to be attacked all the time by the MAGA crowd. And um, he's, he's punching back. And I, 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 th I missed this at the end of the year. You know, we took our break and that was good. But Roy is telling the MAGA guys, well, basically to go F themselves. Here he was during an interview um, where he's, again, you know, he's talking about his support for Ron DeSantis. And they hate him because he supports Ron DeSantis for president. And of course, they, they started to hate Roy when he was one of the Republicans to vote against Trump's interest when, you know, when Trump wanted the Congress to basically overturn the election on January 6th. Roy, who used to work for, I mean, think about the politics in the House versus the Senate that day, where Chip Roy's old boss, Ted Cruz, was leading the charge in the Senate to basically overturn the election for Trump, or raise all these questions about it. And Roy saying, no, we don't shred the Constitution uh, just because we don't like the election result. Well, he, he and the MAGA people have just had it with each other. Listen to Roy and what he's saying about the Make America Great Again crowd. You go around talking your big game and you thumping your chest on Twitter. Yeah, come to my office to come out of a debate, mother. You know why? Because I'm standing up for this country every single day. And Steve, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to go to a nunnery. Because, God damn it, there were people who were buried over in Normandy who deserve us to stand up for what they fought for. So that's what I'm going to do. And all of you fuckers out there who are out there saying what you're saying out on social media, you stick it. I'm going to go down to the floor and do my job, and I'm going to stand up for the people who fought for this country. And I'm going to do it the way I think is right for the people that I represent. That's what I think. What happened to a country where we can't even have order? He was saying that DeSantis as the governor of Florida, should be making the case that as president, he would return order to the United States. Of course, Roy has been going on about the issues along the southern border. That's his main uh, rallying point. He wants DeSantis to be the, um, the Republican nominee. Um, but Jeremy, I, I'm, again, I, I've said this at least two or three times during the show so far, screw the polls. There's almost no indication, whether it's anecdotal or the polls or anything else, that tells you that anything is going to happen in the Republican nominating contest other than Trump being the nominee. Is there anything that tells you any different? Now, I mean, we could sit here and come up with theories about, and some of this has happened in the past, New Hampshire, Iowa, you can have surprises. Obama winning Iowa was a surprise, right? Ted Cruz was able to pull off the, um, the upset win in Iowa when he was running against Trump, of course, then he got crushed later. But he he was the last man standing, to his, to his credit, and they took that all the way to the convention. And remember, the Republican base really turned on Cruz for just a little bit there when he wouldn't uh, endorse Trump. So they've had some bloody battles. Um, but, I mean, if you want to uh, sort, of, sort of deal with the bleeding that DeSantis and Nikki Haley are having to deal with, Nikki Haley, you know, who was, you know, supposedly hailed by the Koch brothers network and establishment Republican types as, you know, she's some sort of antidote to Trump. 
you know, she made it, what I would say is, is not just a New Hampshire mistake, but also a general election mistake when she just wouldn't even use the word slavery to answer a question about what caused the Civil War. <laughs> and that caused a meltdown in her campaign. Um, and DeSantis, every time he tries to make any argument against Trump, he just gets shredded by the MAGA people. Yeah, uh, the, the only thing that's like, uh, and you mentioned it briefly here with Iowa. Iowa is such a wild card. You know, it's like, it looks like we know how it's going to play out, but you just never know. <laughs> you know, the folks in Iowa have had a history, particularly on the Republican side, of voting for Rick Santorum's and <laughs> Ron Paul and, you know, obviously Ted Cruz. You know, they kind of go off the script. They didn't even vote for Reagan, man. They put they voted for George H.W. Bush over Ronald Reagan in 1980 yep. in the primary. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of people forget that. But like they have a, a tendency to, to kind of breed life into some candidates that – you know, maybe we hadn't been thinking about. So who knows if they do that this year? We'll know soon. It's amazing. We're just like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're a week and a half away. You know, next week is the last uh, debate before the primary actually happens up there. Uh, Of course, Donald Trump won't be part of it. But who knows how all this plays out? I don't know. I'm I'm always of that mindset. Let's see how Iowa kind of handles this stuff. You know, there'll be a storyline out of it. If Trump crushes everybody in it, like the polls suggest he's going to, yeah. Then, you know, maybe DeSantis drops out and it's all Haley versus, you know, Trump going into New Hampshire. You know, I don't know if that changes the dynamic at all. But, uh, and, you know, there, there's still something there, at least to kind of look forward. Very different, you know, presidential cycle than what Republicans have dealt with in the past. Right. You think right. of a, that crazy 2016 mm-hmm election cycle right where like every republican their dog was in competition and yeah. everybody seemed to have a shot at iowa when ted cruz you know did actually win iowa mm-hmm. so you're like okay who knows what can happen the field seems to be set um for republicans this year i think in a way that's so different from those other elections we're talking about because they do have a former president running who the who well i'll add one other thing to that a former president running who the base of the party doesn't believe lost the last election to Joe Biden. Everything, everything about it is different. In previous elections, when a, when a major political party loses the election for the White House, they do some introspection. They think about, they put it this way, they sit in a corner and think about what they did wrong. And they, then they try to figure out, okay, why is it that the American people don't love us anymore and we need to shift up what we're doing to win next time? With the Republican Party, there's just no indication, whether it's the polls, whether it's the, you know, the stories you hear about what's happening on the campaign trail, the ways in which DeSantis and Haley and whoever else, you know, Chris Christie, all these people who have been running, the stories about the way that their campaigns just aren't working out, they're not catching fire. I mean, we, by all indications, Nikki Haley, who is the former governor of South Carolina, will probably lose South Carolina to Trump in all likelihood, right? All of this is different because there hasn't been any introspection by the Republican Party about what they need to do different if they're going to beat Joe Biden this time. There is a belief in the Republican Party that one, that, and this is widespread, there was a time when this would have just been sort of a conspiracy theory that you would say, this is just the dark corners of the internet are talking about this. But with, with it now, with, with this conspiracy theory that Trump didn't lose the election, it's widespread within the Republican Party. Those people really believe that. And so for those voters, they do believe, as a consequence, they believe that all they need to do is just do the same thing again. Just have Trump run again, say all the same things again, make his case to the American people and he'll beat Biden. And what they're missing is 
that that's not true at all, that Biden did win. And if you accept the reality that Biden won, then you could also then accept that he's also the only politician to ever beat uh, Trump other than Ted Cruz. <laughs> right? In an election. I mean, this is, that's where we're at. So, uh, so we'll keep an eye on it. I mean, this is going to be a wild year. I mean, look, things um, can twist off quickly in Texas politics and national politics, as you know. We focus on Texas here. Uh, I tend to think that it's a little, and this is not to my, you know, this is not to my personal interest to even say this, Jeremy, but we're here to bring you the truth. It, it's my inclination to think that what we've been told are going to be these bloody, nasty primaries in Texas over the next couple of months, that it's really not going to be that that uh, that competitive. I think for the, we'll get into it in shows that are coming up, Texas House races in particular, where the governor's already going after some of these guys, we'll talk about that coming up. Um in those races before that are going to unfold in the days before the March primary, that it's going to be a nasty primary, but they're, but they've all been nasty in their own way. Right. And that's why we show up every day to say, Hey, look, here's the way in which this is nasty. And here are the ways in which it matters to you because of the kind of policy implications that come out of that. Uh, and what will happen in the state going forward. I do believe that we've just done another double platinum edition of the show to kick off 2024. It sure feels like it. Um, so that is definitely enough show. Uh, my thanks to Evan Scherer, our producer extraordinaire who joined us in 2023. My thanks to Jeremy, who of course, uh, his newsletter, you can check out on his Twitter page. It's the top thing there on his Twitter page. The link to sign up for his newsletter is there. If you're not a subscriber at quorumreport.com, I don't know why, it's real easy. Just go there, quorumreport.com, click free sign up, and uh, we'll get you uh, going with the uh, campaign and government e uh, email updates that you need. One thing that we just don't do is spam you all the time. Anything else you sign up for, you're going to get spam, just about. Not Jeremy's newsletter, but you, you know what happens. Nope. At the beginning of the year, I did this sort of toward the end of the year, uh, I went and unsubscribed from so many things that have been coming into my inbox. It's so cluttered. Every morning, every day, you want to skip right past all that. We get like a machete and just just cut through all of that garbage so that you make sure to get your quorum report emails, your Texas Take newsletter emails. They'll be right there for you each and every day. We'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.